Hi, this is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is home for survivors like myself and those who yearn to build resilience in their mindset and live their best life. In Season 3, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the wellness, business, media, and travel industries. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed. As a board-certified wellness coach, number one best-selling author, and syndicated columnist, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. Today's podcast guest on resilience is work relationship specialist and author of Work Jerks, Louise Carnahan. As Louise states, how can you get rid of whatever those things that are going on in your brain that are shoving you back into work when you're not at work? Taking up free rent in your brain? One of the best is if you are commuting and you're driving over a bridge, that you drop it into the water or down below off the bridge and get rid of it. Hi, Savio. It's great to be with you. Um, Well, I live on the West Coast. I'm in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, and I am a what I call semi-retired because I didn't quite do the retirement thing. Uh, I started writing and I'm still coaching. Um, But my previous work was organization development and leadership uh, coaching and training. Communications, really. It's all about how people interact in the world. And now I'm writing. So I've kind of taken on a new career. Wow. You know, it's really interesting. You and I connected with the Rising Through Resilience piece with Authority Magazine and Thrive Global. And one of the things I found very intriguing was you said every sort of derailment started with a recession of some kind. <laughs> Give us some more context with that, because that's that's pretty heavy. Yeah, well, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, I just managed to be born, I guess, at the right time for every major graduation had some kind of recession going on. So even starting with, I think, when I graduated from high school. But yeah, when I got out of college, I thought I was going to move on to be um, working in a state institution in California. And uh, it was Governor Reagan then, and he closed them. (laughs) So that's when that went out the window. And then I started waitressing more. So I'd waitressed in college. I waitressed out of college. Um, I've had a lot of weird little jobs over the years, you know, motel maid and all this stuff. And um, I thought, well, you know, I could waitress anywhere. And I thought about going up to Seattle where I had friends and kind of getting my residency so I could be a state student at the University of Washington and get in the master's of social work program, which fortunately I did. So um, I was waitressing in a train themed restaurant where, you know, I sent food and beer around on trains and they derailed and, you know, things would happen. 
Um, but I, I got my master's again. I thought I was going to go off to be a therapist and we were in a recession. So uh, I didn't get that job. And then I went to work at the University of Washington. So that's where I'd done my internship. And I actually had that changed my whole career. So that was my career path, um, working with teams. And that went on for a number of years. Um, well, not that many, I guess three. And then the, the money ran out. <laughs> so mm -hmm. then I was out of work again, went to work in a hospital, had a great time working there, learned a lot, went on to work in a manufacturing organization very, very briefly and started my own business. So that went on for 23 years. And then we had the recession, the big recession of 2008. So that derailed all my plans. And at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do because I thought no one would hire me. You know, I was older. Um, when I had last worked for an employer, we didn't even have computers on our desktops. So I, of course, I had compute. I had computers over the years, my my own, but I was never networked to anybody. I remember the first time I met somebody because I did get hired. I was so fortunate. I went to work at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, which is this magnificent research center on cancer. You may be familiar with it, Savio, from your other work. But anyway, I went to work there, and uh, the first time somebody said well, just go ahead and look at my Outlook calendar and put something on the calendar. I was like, wow. could you tell me exactly what that is <laughs> and how that works? They must have wondered who on earth they hired. Anyway, that went really well for me. I was so fortunate to land there um, because that was a real dark night of the soul, you know, at the point that I, I really lost my work for three years and and I needed to go to work. Yeah, I, I know you also mentioned uh, in the article about your study of cognitive behavior therapy. What have you found in all the various iterations of jobs and, and you know, work-life balance? What have you found is the kernel to that? Oh, goodness, for work-life balance. That's a really tough one because so here are a couple things I've noted over the years. Some people love their work so much, it's actually their hobby. You know, it's both. So I might look at the hours they're putting in and say, you know, there's no work-life balance going on there. But they're loving what they're doing. They're thriving. They aren't I mean, the stress that they have is is their own stress about wanting to do whatever it is that they're doing, but they're not overly stressed beyond that. Um, and there's certain professions that really lend to that. I mean, they just never stop. Like scientists don't stop being scientists. They just want to keep going. And that's different, I think, from looking at people who are really you know, they like their job maybe, and they trained well for it, and they know they can do a good job, but they have a whole nother life outside of work. And when they don't have enough time for that, then they're set up with a real push-pull uh, between what they can do and what they can't do. And that's when you start seeing a lot of stress. You know, when people have to be at work and they're missing big chunks of their kids' lives, 
or their relationships are, are diminishing or they find that they don't have friends anymore. There's never time to get together and just relax with people. That's, I think that's when there's been a real tip. Um, and so for those people, it's a matter of figuring out how can they let go of some of that work stuff? And I did talk with a number of clients over the years about releasing it on the way home. You know, because you're going to have a limited number of hours with your family. Or even if you're living alone, you only have a limited number of hours in the evening and, you know, you want to get some sleep. So how can you get rid of whatever those things are that are going on in your brain that are shoving you back into work when you're not at work? It's taking up free rent in your brain. And one of the best is if, uh, you know, if you're commuting and um, you're driving over a bridge, whether you're on a, or, you know, in a train or uh, in a car or on a bus, that you drop it into the water or down below off the bridge and get rid of it. Um, really recommend that people go home and change their clothes. Get out of the work clothes, get out of the work shoes, um, do something, you know, walking is always terrific. People who have dogs are, are kind of at an advantage there because they have to go for a walk. Um, but, you know, it, it, those things to kind of shake it off, let it go so that you can transition and see it as a transition. Do it consciously. Don't just, you know, zone out on your way home, but consciously drop it. Let it go. I know uh, you mentioned as well that one of your stressful times of working in a jail health clinic. I was just so fascinated. And you said it impacts everything else, including communication. What was that like? Well, that was, you know, I, I think I wrote about this, that, that so many workplaces think that they're incredibly unique. And when it comes to human interaction, there's not that much that's all that unique, but there are environments that are completely unique. Um, and I, I saw a couple, you know, uh, that were really notable in the time that I was working with clients. And one was uh, the jail. So, you know, anybody who's ever visited a jail or a prison knows you go through rigorous screening on your way in. So you start at the very beginning. And then once you get into an elevator, you have no control. So there are unseen people who are moving that elevator and it's based on where inmates need to go. So you don't know how long it's gonna take you to get to your destination. And then one of the things I do remember is getting out of that elevator and you go through double doors and there was a place to discharge weapons. Um, and then you move through and there were more double doors and then you're, and none of this you have control over. Every door is opened by someone who's watching you on a video camera. Just the environment made my stress go up. So I can't imagine what it was like to go to work every day. And these people were working in the health clinic. They couldn't escape, so to speak, for a 15 minute break because they didn't know how long it would take to get back. Um, going away at lunch, same thing. You don't know how long it will take. So the normal stress reducers, like go out for a walk, you know, go look at something different. It kind of wasn't available to them for their entire shift. 
And I'm sure there are a lot of people right now who can relate to that, particularly healthcare workers who just can't get away. Yeah. You know, what's really great about your work is you mentioned that you work with clients and it's about helping them get out of their own way, which sounds so simple, but so difficult to practice. And this aspect of fostering independence versus dependence, how have you found, you know, how you found that just sort of land on, on individuals? Um, so it's kind of interesting. I've had people who have wanted to be clients or wanted to be mentored by me, but they really didn't have a place they wanted to go with it. And they have to determine what the goal is. It's not me to determine that for them. Um, they need to know what they want. And a lot of people are pretty clear about what they want. <clears throat> a lot of people already have the resources within but something is getting in the way. And, um, and then we're kind of uncovering that. And often it's, it's the thoughts they're having, you know, and it drives their actions. So that can be problematic. And then there's the issue of kind of the emotional intelligence piece of just not being aware of how you're coming across. You may be somewhat aware of what your emotions are or not. I mean, some people really aren't. Uh, but how they're, they're impacting others can be mysterious to them. They're just kind of not noticing. And then it's helping them pay attention to cues. You know, um, I remember one client I had, this was a really interesting one because he had a very high powered position, um, you know, both clinically and, you know, he was just a, a, a very, he was completely well-educated. I mean, you know, way over the top education, but he had no social sense. So he made blunders and they were costing him. He was one who was sent to me. You know, you never want, <laughs> you never want your clients to come to you like you're the uh, principal's office, but that was kind of the case for him. And the stakes were high because he was really not doing very well as a result of his lack of social um, understanding and awareness. And, you know, you kind of have to fall in love with your clients. I mean, I do anyway. I always, I always root for them. I'm always on their side. I really care about them. And, and so, you know, we got to know each other a little bit and he showed me a picture he was very proud of, of having been out on a hike with a group of people. And the picture was these folks who are all kind of cheering and smiling on top of, of some big rise. And there he is, and he doesn't even have a smile on his face. And I said, so how did you feel when you got up there? And he was like, I was exhilarated. It was fantastic. And I said, so look at your face. You don't, you don't have a smile on your face. And he was kind of like, oh, huh. You know, it hadn't occurred to him that what he was feeling internally wasn't showing up. So I'm sure it was very difficult for people to read him and he wasn't reading others. So we had to go through a lot of kind of looking for cues because he didn't get them. Yeah, I and also you alluded to having a, a you know, university uh, you know, psychology you know, professor who it's like that ethical line between staying in therapy for years or buying a boat, which I found so intriguing um, that the value must be there for the client. Can you expound more on that? Yeah, that that was something that really 
took me back. Um, and obviously I've never forgotten it, you know, and that's many, many, many years later. This was an abnormal psychology class and the professor, you know, psychotherapy was big then. Um, it never really goes out of favor, but there are lots of other, what are called kind of more rapid techniques for therapy, plus there are medications that just weren't available back then. Um, but when he said, because psychotherapy can go on for years, and he said, you have to ask the question, would your client feel better buying a boat than spending the money on you? Wow. And I'm like, wow, yeah. It, that's, that's something you really have to think about. And I have always thought of that uh, because I was self-employed for so long. I was thinking about what I charge people and you want it to be enough that people feel like I'm getting value, but you don't want it to be so much that um, that you really question whether they're getting what they should be getting for the money. Mm-hmm. I think I also mentioned this is not the way to make the most money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So I would love to come back to really the purpose of this conversation is how do you define resilience? For me, resilience is is not just kind of bouncing back. I think that's kind of the common term is, you know, resilience is bouncing back. There's an element of bouncing back, but I think what we mean by bouncing back is that you bounce back to live another day with some joy, not just live, um, that you're able to to go through what you're going through because there's no denying what you're going through. Well, you could deny it, but I think actually going through difficult times makes us deeper people, um, certainly hones our empathy uh, for others. But that when you come back, you know, when you realize, and I don't think it's, you know, like a day that you suddenly go, well, I'm back. Although there might be moments where you think, wow, I was laughing again. I haven't laughed for a while. Or um, I've got some energy today. You know, I don't feel completely exhausted. That those are moments that you realize, you know what, I am coming out of this. And, um, you know, the example I gave in the article was this remarkable woman who'd, who'd been through the worst. I mean, she was she was in the Holocaust, you know, she was in this horrible situation. She had the tattoos. Um, I don't know which of the camps she was in. Um, I think Birkow and Auschwitz both tattooed the people who were there. Um, so she went through some really horrific things. She was quite young. And she was when I think of Rosalie, she was this vibrant, gracious, smiling woman um, who always had a question for me, you know, who was, you know, a teenager or in my early 20s. I wasn't very interesting, but she she was she was fascinating. And I didn't really know her story. It was my father, you know, who told me. And it took years for me to understand exactly how bad that had been. Um, and yet, she went on to be a loving, wonderful human being. That to me is real resilience. What do you feel are, 
are the traits or characteristics that made Rosalie so so special or in in this sense very resilient? You know, that's that's such a great question. Um, you know, Viktor Frankl wrote that book about his experience and has a lot more to say about that than I would. I th there's something that happens for people who can come out of that that has to do with not remembering as clearly, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because if you remember every detail, then you're reliving it all over again. Um, I know that there's some fascinating new evidence about kind of what creates PTSD. And um, part of the issue, I think, if I understood this correctly, is, is remembering too well, remembering details. Um, when those who are able to, you know, move on without being plagued by that, don't go back to all those details. And it may be some quirk in the brain. I, you know, I don't know, um, or certain chemicals that occur. That's beyond what I know. Um, but there is something unique about people who are able to, to kind of, I won't say forget, you don't forget, um, but not dwell. So maybe being, you know, we hear a lot about mindfulness and being in the moment, that they're able to be in the moment, in this moment, and what's available now. Yeah. I think you also mentioned in the article about living to see another day that yeah. they don't remain down, they learn to adapt, they learn to find that zeal out of life. Um, yeah, it's actually yeah. very profound. Well, Frankel said it so much better. I mean, in the, in the horrific situation they were in, there's something that has to happen that normalizes it so you can live through it. Hmm. Um, and so maybe these are particularly adaptive people who are able to normalize whatever situation they're in and, and move on. I mean, when I think of every refugee who has been through whatever they've been through, I, people don't willingly leave their country, their home countries. You know, that's a pretty dramatic and traumatic thing to leave what you know and your language and your customs and everything to go someplace else altogether. There are people who adapt better than others. You know, and it doesn't always have to do with age. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what is it about them? And that would be a great study, right? What is it about refugees who are able to adapt and um, feel joy in, in their new country, um, not miss their old country for forever? You know, I mean, there's always a fondness and I'm sure a memory, but can be where they are now. Yeah, yeah. and thrive. Yeah. It's so interesting because when we talk about sort of this idea of resilience, courage sometimes gets added to it. Do you see a difference between the two or similarities? I do see a difference. Um, and maybe it's, it's making too fine a line on it. But I think courage is often seen by others, you know, courageous acts, somebody who is putting themselves in danger uh, in the service of others. And um, resilience is such an internal state that unless you know somebody's backstory, I'm not sure you always know about somebody's resilience. Yeah. 
And, you know, you also alluded to growing up in the Mad Men era. And yeah. there were so many limiting options available for women. Yeah. How did you come through all that? Well, we all did. <laughs> right? I mean, it was normal. So so you you just come through it. I was just writing about this the other day because International Women's um, Day is next week. And, um, and I read a book recently by uh, a fellow author um, called Just a Girl. And she talks about the same era. And she's just a couple years older than me, but she was in science and how she was treated throughout her career as a woman in science. And I'd like to tell you that it's uh, it's all better and it's not all better. Um, there are some things that are better. There's certainly more women in science, for example. But yeah, a lot of options were just closed off to us. You know, I mean, I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> that was my thing. And there weren't women astronauts. Um, yeah, so there weren't any models. And I really, I think as I get older and I see the impact of not seeing people like you doing things, I get it more. Um, because I, there were no, there weren't female models. And in fact, um, even reading interesting books, I was a science fiction fan. They were all male heroes. Mm -hmm. So you just learn to adapt and, and put yourself in the place of that. Now, I did uh, go to college during the years of the second wave of feminism, so that was helpful. I mean, you weren't absolutely dictated to come out with a MRS degree, you know, come out with your, your engagement or your marriage. Um, but, you know, it was a thing between my dad and me. He just didn't see anything for me other than uh, secretary. You know, and I wasn't interested in being a teacher. I, on, ironically, I've ended up teaching most of my life, but I didn't want to work in an elementary school or high school. So, um, yeah, there, the limits were set. And the idea was you would work until you got married and then you'd raise kids. Mm -hmm. And then you might get divorced and then you have to go back to work or you might decide to go back. To, I mean, it was kind of a screwy idea of what the path was for most women and i feel very fortunate i was able to do what i wanted to do and once i had my own business my dad was an unbelievable cheerleader um so he came around <laughs> well, you know you also speak very candidly about some of your health challenges and how you like you mentioned came out of that mess how, yeah. how have you found re a renewed sense of hope from all that well, you know, when you're in the middle of a significant health challenge, which you, you've been through, you know this, it's really hard to see yourself on the other side of it at, at moments. You know, you wish for it, you hope for it, you you try and visualize it, but it's also scary. And um, and I, I had inadequate health insurance. I mean, we'll start with that. So we're in a country that charges a lot for medicine. And um, I remember the medication I needed to take was outrageously expensive. It was like $400 a month. And I didn't have that kind of money. Um, and my decision about what healthcare plan to go with once I got employed was based on who was gonna pay. 
for this medication. And I, I'll never forget calling because I'd been part of a health plan for many, many years. And I said, are you going to be able to do any better than this? And they said, no. And I said, okay, then you've lost me. Because when I called the other healthcare plan and said, what are you, what are you going to charge for this? And I'll never forget this because the woman was so apologetic. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. That's, you know, one of our tier one or whatever they call it, you know, medications. And so it's more expensive. Um, it's $30 a month. Wow. <laughs> 30 versus 400. And she said, you know, and you probably could, could get a discount if you get 90 at a time. So you might be able to get down to 60 a month. I'm like, or 60 for three months. I said, Oh, that's fine. <laughs> wow. But yeah, if you're faced with a significant health challenge, you don't have the money. Um, what's being prescribed for you is out of reach. Then it really is kind of a cycling down. I mean, it's so hard to keep up. And in, in my case, the, the situation I was in when I was having episodes of this problem, I was exhausted. I, I had no energy um, and anybody who's going through treatment knows what that's like. I mean, if you're going through chemo or radiation, it starts taking its toll. So working, being exhausted, having a significant health challenge. Um, I was lucky. I got, I got the health plan I needed at the time I needed it, got the right care, got it taken care of. It's out of my life forever. And um, I'm just so grateful. So Louise, what are five steps that someone can take to become more resilient? Well, if you don't mind, I've kept my crib sheet here <laughs> because I knew you were going to ask that question. So, you know, one of the things is keeping your healthy habits, mm -hmm. which we tend not to do when we're stressed, um, you know, especially if you're exhausted. We don't just go to bed. We, we do other things. Uh, to try and deal with the exhaustion, like eating the wrong stuff or staying up too late, you know, um, watching cat videos or whatever you're doing, you know, and, and that can be really a problem. So we need to sleep. I mean, that literature has been out there for a long time. Um, stress management skills, you know, the obvious ones. I was one of the worst offenders for knowing how to teach it and not using it myself. So, you know, you got to do them, you, you, you know, and, and people fight doing meditation. I'm a believer. Uh, I really think it helps me. But there are other things you can do. And uh, there's one that's really kind of cool that's just a basic cognitive behavioral technique, which is to ask yourself the question, what could have gone worse or what could be going worse because we usually especially if we have a disappointing outcome in something we think about all the things we should have done better we don't think about what could have gone worse and my go-to's are i didn't faint and i didn't throw up in public i mean unfortunately those two things are still true <laughs> and i'm still here <laughs> You know, and it, it really, part of it's putting it in perspective, whatever's going on. And so, you know, I think practicing gratitude is really a wonderful thing to do. I keep a gratitude journal. A lot of people do. Um, I have a lot of people who say they just hate 
doing that kind of thing, doing journal writing. I learned an exercise recently that um, your viewers might like, which is all you have to do is look around a room and pick one thing mm -hmm. in that room and think about all the hands it took to get it to your place. You know, what a, what a great exercise in gratitude. So, you know, if it's a piece of art, it's not just the artist, it's how did it get to, if it's printed or whatever, just all the elements that went into it and where you bought it. And, and it's a, it usually will take you to a pretty sweet place of memory too, of something that you enjoyed purchasing. So that's a, that's another great stress management thing. Um, I think you have to be careful about what you're watching and listening to, especially these days. Our, our news cycles are all about selling ads, right? So it's a lot of drama. Yeah. And I, I'm sometimes kind of horrified by the way in which reporters report things because they don't seem like the reporting facts they get into a lot of opinion and there's a lot of, I don't know if you noticed this, Savio, a lot of um, uh, dramatic presentation. The verbal presentation is quite, you know, filled with drama. Well, we take that stuff in, you know, how, how I am particularly susceptible to it. I don't have a very high tolerance before I can start feeling really down. And if I have a week where I am feeling low, I think, how many times did I watch the news this week? You know, and that's usually a tip. So I'm not altogether sure what the balance is between keeping informed and not going down a, a rabbit hole of despair. Um, but there is some balance there. I, I try and scan headlines so I'm at least informed. But it's, I don't do a huge number of deep dives and I try and limit how often I'm watching the news. You know, I still watch it, but maybe not every night because it's pretty grim, yeah. right? Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and at this point, I would love to do what I call a little brainstorming session here. Oh, sure. Basically, um, I know I asked that question about what would you suggest or do for a movement? And one of the things that really piqued my interest was you mentioned about people think about themselves more than they think about someone else. So for me, I'm trying to think to myself, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. And one of the things people all around me, I was on the seventh floor, they called it the cancer floor. I had like four different roommates over the course of two weeks that I was there, um, kept saying like, why me, why me? And my whole thing is, well, why not you? There's someone, there's children who had cancer who didn't even to see their first birthday. There's uh, so many host of countries, people live in different countries who don't have any adequate life or, 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 or welfare. And, you know, they're, they're just living like orphans. So why not you? So I, I would love to sort of, you know, pick, you know, pick your brain a little bit and figure out what do you suggest that we can shake up our routines and become more, not only compassionate, but see ourselves as a larger extension. Yeah. You know, I, I've already told, I confess to you that I'm uh, I'm an astronaut wannabe. Um, so <laughs> I've paid close attention to what astronauts say when they come back to Earth. And I wish we could send everyone up so they could look back at the Earth and see it. You know, there are no borders. There's, you know, we're this small 
planet in the midst of a lot of dark and um, and get some perspective that that it's all of us. It's, you know, it's not just us as a country or a family or an individual. Um, so the, that empathy thing, but I think it's bigger than empathy. I don't know what it is. Compassion, um, it's an understanding that we're all in it together. None of us is, is separate from the whole. So yes, if there's a, a cancer anywhere, it could be any one of us. It could be any one of us. If there's a war anywhere, it could be any one of us. Yeah. You know, we, I thought maybe we had a moment with COVID where we get it, that in fact, it could be any one of us, yeah. but we don't seem to have completely got that message yet. I don't know, Savia, what do you think? What do you think it takes? I think it really takes uh, individuals to really have a deep dive with self. And I, I know that sounds cliched, but really I don't think people stop to think about their motivation. A lot of the coaching that I do, especially on my podcast as well, because I do a little sample with individuals, they just, most of the time they say to me, I haven't even taken the time to think about these things ever in my life. So I really think it takes a pause, but even like a deeper pause and a willingness to want to do that. That's the, that's the thing. Some people just don't want to do it because it's too hard. Yeah. Or scary. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know what you're going to uncover and you're, you're barely hanging on. Yep. You know, hundred percent. Well, this was so enjoyable. So Louise Cunningham, can you please tell my audience where they can find you online? Absolutely. I um, can be found at my website, which is www.louisecarnahan, which is spelled funny. <laughs> so in your show notes, I'm sure you've got it. You've got it right up there on the screen. Uh, Carnahan looks like Carnachan. The whole family spells it wrong. I don't know what to say. <laughs> uh, so that I'm also on LinkedIn and I have an author page on Facebook, L.A. Carnahan because this is coming out soon. Yay! Wonderful. Love it. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. And I have a, a workplace advice blog on my website. So I would encourage people to take a peek at that. And if they like it, to subscribe to it so that they get it when it drops. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Luis. I so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It was a pleasure, Savio. Thank you so much. Sure. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. You can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, a subscription to my weekly newsletter, where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains, and my author website, isurvivedcancer.co, well, you can purchase my number one best-selling book, I Survived Cancer and Here's How I Did It. 35 cancer survivors share their journey and view the book trailer, including excerpts from the book. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this podcast platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.